Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of One Step Beyond. This is a podcast about transformation through leadership. On our show, we have conversations with people who are creating change in business, in their community, and in their lives by choosing to lead. This is about daring to overcome barriers, push past limitations, and reshape our present and our future. So, lately I've been feeling, I don't know how to say it, like, more comfortable in my own skin. I probably started about a year ago. I really started to feel like, although we're having this pandemic and being in this space, I really started thinking a lot about who I am and who I want to be. And maybe it's about having all this extra time to be, you know, in the house and working from the same space. Maybe it's having a kid. Uh, Maybe it's becoming responsible for my parents who are, you know, seniors. I just feel like I've gotten to a place where finally I feel more okay with who I am. And it's been an interesting thing. As you'll hear in our conversation today, at one point I say, you know, I've always been more talented than I have been confident. And what I mean by that is like, you know, I'm brimming with ideas. I'm always out doing a million things. But I also like deep inside this real sense of just feeling like flawed or incapable or really overtly worried about my relationships has been something that's plagued me a lot in my life. It's actually been like a huge anchor around my neck. But I don't know. There's something about like the past while where I feel like I've I've moved past that largely. And, you know, I still have those moments of just like plummeting insecurity. But they're a lot less often and they have a lot less impact on me. And I'm actually usually able to kind of like get a hold of myself pretty quickly. And I'm really getting to a place where, you know what? I just feel good, feel good about life. I feel good about who I am and where I'm going. And it's been one of the most liberating things that I guess could have happened to me in my life. So it's, it's been really cool. Um, today, we're talking to someone that I, I believe has been on somewhat of a similar journey. And in fact, many of the things that they were saying, it, they just struck such a chord with me. So today, we're talking to Danan Porter. Danan is an American rapper, producer, singer, and composer. As a founding member of D12, he sold millions of albums and produced the likes of Eminem, 50 Cent, Snoop Dogg, and many more. He's been nominated for two Grammys and shows no signs of slowing down. Our conversation was, I might even say a little life-changing for me. There are some things that he mentioned that really have made me stop and pause and think about what's next for me. So uh, I, I really believe that this is an episode that's going to resonate with a lot of people. So before we get started, I want to thank our sponsors, SE Electronics. And if you haven't yet, then please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. So let's get to the episode. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. everyone welcome back to the show so as i said in our intro we have a very cool guest here today um someone that i feel that can really speak to what's it like to be a real creator in the public eye someone who has created incredible things for themselves who's also been a part of helping other people who you know quite significant within the entertainment industry create things 
and someone who's got a super cool life story with lots of ups and you know some challenging downs. So for me, this is a story about persistence, you know, someone who's resilient, someone who's accountable to themselves, and someone who's got like great vision for the future. So with that, Danan, welcome to the show. Thank you for that illustrious, incredible intro. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't talk that good about myself, so I like that. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know, listen, uh, if you need any help with a promotional tour, I am available. Listen, man, I'm already, I'm already doing numbers in my head. <laughs> right on. Okay. So, man, a, a strike point I want to hit right off the bat is when Patrick was doing um, some prep work with you, he said, hey, you know, what have you been working on since COVID hit? And your answer was myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell us about that. Um, I'm like a lot of people. That, well, what a lot of people don't realize is this pandemic has forced everybody to to look. They, they got in their house. This is how I feel. They got inside their house and they looked around and it was nobody there, right, on the other side or the person that was on the other side of the bed they didn't like or the person in the mirror they didn't like. Mm. So outside of the creative part, I just literally just took the opportunity because I've been running around since I was 22, 23 years old. I've been in the industry that long. For 20 years, and I've been in front of cameras and doing what I've been doing in music and all of that since I was 19. I never really stopped, had that much time to myself. I never really had it, you know? I always had people around. Then this was like you couldn't. Uh, I always had somewhat of a assistance where it came to people being in, you know, when I lived in a place, I had to have somebody helping me and all of that because I was in and out all the time. And it's the first time I ever stayed somewhere longer than a month or yeah, longer than a month. Wow. And, and le- this is the longest I've ever stayed in a house that I've owned. I've ever sat in it. So I started working on me. I was just like, that was the first step. You know, you like things, you don't like things, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah. so uh, question, question for you. You said, yeah. you know, like people get in their house and they, realize things they realize their house is empty or they realize they don't like a person across the bed for them or mm-hmm. they don't like the person in the mirror mm-hmm. so which one was it for you i realized i was alone mm-hmm. like i realized how alone well let me say that in a way where it's like because i don't feel like we ever are i feel like you you know whatever deity you you, you believe in but i feel like god is always there but i i was you know physically i'm like wow <laughs> i didn't do a lot of work to the personal space. <laughs> it was like, yeah. so I looked at it and I was like, okay, this is like different. Cause I, you know, and that was the first thing I noticed, but then it was a lot of trauma, man. Like lost friends, lost lives, lost, uh, opportunities. And I realized how much of an introvert I really am and how much I like being by myself. Cause I like myself. I like, I like being, I didn't know how much I'd enjoy it, but, you know, I picked up a lot of different skills and, but I was, man, I just started looking inside. I, I was that first couple of months, I was like having panic attacks and anxiety attacks because I do deal with that uh, anxiety really bad. And uh, I had to go, thank God they had like a virtual therapy. Mm. So I started doing that. And that was like the beginning of the road, like, which I always went to therapy, but like, Man, that was different because 
you know, you're sitting there and I'm panicking. I'm like, I don't want to get sick. I got a heart condition. I got AFib. So I got to mm -hmm. be careful anyway. And so I'm like, okay, I can't get sick. It's not going to go well. <laughs> I got a pre-existing thing in my head along with a pre-existing condition. And then you start thinking negative and in this world. And then I had to stop watching the news, stop watching certain stuff and shut myself down away from everything. And that's where it kind of started. Yeah. So working on yourself, mm -hmm. how successful have you been and what have you found out about yourself? Um, for a long time, I thought I couldn't be by myself. But then it was like, hell, that's not right because I love it. <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> so, i was like well you was wrong there on the first thing that i realized was i thought that some of the traumas that i had were, were coming from places that like i thought some of it was my father my, me and my father's relationship mm -hmm. um and there's it was like it started transforming because i started realizing like okay at first i thought so i call myself mr porter my whole mm -hmm. idea behind that was like all right look if this this don't work one day I'm going to walk into a place and because I'm a grown-up, they might say, oh, Mr. Porter, thank you for yada yada. So I'd be famous either way it go, right? <laughs> so if it didn't work, it was like they're going to say that. So then you'd be with a chicken it's like, they know you. And it's like, really, they're just saying what they would normally say, right? right. So that was my first thing. And then I was like, just it was like an ode to my father because he kind of stopped doing what he did to raise his family. And I'm mm -hmm. his first, um, first biological son. Mm-hmm. I have an older, older brother, um, but he ended up moving back down south. But I was my father's first. So I actually had, I carried a lot of guilt. I was shot at 14. So mm -hmm. I, I was, and that went terribly, that went a whole different way because uh, flatlining surgery and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I was blaming myself for a lot of stuff. And I was holding this guilt and I had this survival's guilt. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was for the people that didn't make it that I was around. But th mm -hmm. that wasn't true. It was a lot of me carrying a lot of like, man, I don't want to let my dad down. I hope yeah. that he, I hope that he feels like that he could live vicariously through some of the things that I was able to do, you know, and I hope he was proud. And then I was all of these things and I was carrying a lot of it yeah. and I didn't know that, you know, and then shoot, I had some, uh, some things that I realized with my mom, like, um, I was a lot, I was sheltered a lot. So I was scared of the world in a sense when it came to certain stuff. I could be fearless, but then not. I think, I think I was doing things because I wanted camaraderie. So I would hang around the wrong people because my older brother did leave. And that was something that I had to face. Like it was like, it actually hurt me. Mm. He left and he went back down south. And that actually hurt because I was like, was it me? Like, you know what I mean? Like you just don't know. And yeah. when you're that young, you don't talk about it as a family. Mm -hmm. It just happened. Right. And so... I just started, you know, that was the first thing I started realizing that some of the traumas I had, I had them confused. I thought it was from other things. I thought my survival remorse was from me making it and my friends didn't, but it wasn't. It was like, sometimes I felt like, dang, if I, did I stop my dad's dreams because I was mm -hmm. born? Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you, you had, you hold that stuff. So. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about your dad and his dreams. Um, he, my father is a singer, an incredible singer, and he's a gospel singer. And he um, was, he sang with the the original Five Blind Boys of Alabama. Mm -hmm. And then him, he and my uncles had a group called the Christianaires and they were popular and, and they, he was just this amazing singer. He also won, my father actually 
I just started going through this video because I'm working on an album called Reflection. And um, my father won. He was one of the first people. He was the first person to sing Hello Detroit in the Detroit parade. Like, you know, the parades, wow. the yeah, Michigan yeah. parade. So he, he, he sing it. And we was like on TV and all that stuff. And I found it. I got the video. And I had never, I didn't even remember myself from being shot. I don't remember being a kid. So that was something else. Mm -hmm. that i that i came that uncovered that i got uncovered mm -hmm. i don't remember anything mm -hmm. so i didn't see myself because i don't have a lot of pictures of me as a kid and i saw this video of myself and i cried for like two days i was like in tears wow wow just so, because you know this kid i never i'm looking at him and i'm like this is me but it don't feel like me but i know that it's me yeah so your father had to give up that creative lifestyle to be able to work to raise a family is that right that's the thing. He didn't have to, hmm. but he did, which was an honorable thing. But I also looked at it like I may have felt guilty for doing what I was doing. Hmm. You know what I mean? Because he did. And it's like, I know how happy it makes me. I'm sure it made him just as happy. And he could have. Hmm. We don't know when you're younger, like when he was when he was coming up, that was probably the best thing to do. But nowadays, people do both. Yeah, yeah, totally. It was just a different time. It's a different so, time, you know? Like, coming up, before you became, like, able to, like, really focus in, in creating and being in that space with music, mm -hmm. tell us some of the defining moments of you growing up, defining relationships, defining things that happened. What really stands out to you that led you down the path of music? Um, well, I used to watch him. Man, he's come in. He's come in with their suits and, <laughs> and hangers, and they would walk in and, you know, walk into the church and, like, the way people would react to him and stuff, that was always, it scared me because I admired him for it because I was like, man, how he do that? I'm scared of people. Yeah. I don't really like people all that much, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when I would see it, for me to be doing it and stand in front of 80,000 people, that was like, the thing that I didn't like, I ended up doing. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I was good. Man, they sing. They are singers. Like, they, it's, he showed me stuff today. Like, he just put me up on, I forget the guy's name where Al Green got his style from. And I watched this dude for like two days, just old videos of this guy. And I was like, my dad put me up on him. And I was like, man, how do y'all do this? Like, I'm not that good of a performer when it comes to that. <laughs> like, I'm not this I'm like, so those defining moments to me, they kind of made me today, I, I, those things. Like, I watched him talk to a crowd and like he knew everybody and but didn't know all of those people. They knew mm -hmm. him, but he didn't know all them people. Mm -hmm. And... Um, that was like the first defining thing. And I think after that would be, man, getting shot was a, like, that was, it messed me up. Mm -hmm. uh, because I, even today, like I, I battle a fight with my, with the thoughts of my mortality. Mm -hmm. I'm already dealing with that as a black man anyway, which you see what's going on, which has been going on. It's just crazy that it hasn't changed much. Uh, Did you want to get into that at all? Into getting, into getting shot. Did, oh yeah, I mean, I, what happened was I was like hanging around the wrong crowd of people, like just looking for camaraderie amongst brothers and just trying to be friends with people and stuff, and like doing stupid stuff to to, to do that. Mm -hmm. And then one day, this this guy, like he was always playing with guns, he was always messing with guns, like. And ironically, this is the second time. I remember we was in a stolen car one time. I can say this now, he won't get in trouble. Uh, but he was like, um, he was in a stolen car, and I remember he had a 
double barrel. Mm-hmm. He driving the car, my friend driving the car, he turns around and points it in my face. And I'm like, I move it. And he moves past my friend's head and it goes off, shoots the axle in the car, smoking the whole car. And we got stolen stuff in the car. We had broken into a house, all that kind of shit. And we pull over. And I was like, man, was he trying to shoot me? Like, you know what I mean? Because it's yeah. loaded. It's a double. Ba- you know it's loaded. It ain't nowhere. Mm-hmm. It, it's not like a revolver. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know it's bullets in this thing. It's two slugs in it. Then the second time he was at my house. He was at my house and he pulled up in a stolen car again because that's what we used to do. And he pointed it at me again. And I'm like, yo, at this point I'm mad. Like, why are you always fucking playing with gun and pushed his hand down. Boom, gun goes off. And I was like, it just never, it was always, was it intentional? Was it, you know what I'm saying? Like, so I, but I had to get past that. At that point, I detached myself completely from everything and everybody at that moment because Mm -hmm. I walked around, they sent me home. I had a bullet in my leg and they sent me home, which was was just a result as, as I grow older, I know it's just a result of a typical black family. This kid got shot. Send them home. People live with bullets in them all the time. This whole week, the bullet is moving through my leg, tearing up arteries and across the artery with a vein. Mm. And I woke up one day and I was like super fever. And it was back of my leg. It was hurting. The bullet had moved to the back of my leg, but it had crossed this artery in this vein. And um, I tell this story a bit on this song called Letter to Sydney. I put it out a year ago. And what happened was nobody wanted to do this surgery. This one doctor, which I just kind of found him a year ago, and I I haven't spoke to him yet, but I want to to let him know that he didn't just save some kid and I went off and did the same shit. Um, He did the surgery. The reason that nobody wanted to do the surgery because they had to take the artery from my right, they had to take a vein from my right leg, which was a part of my productive system. And they had to take whatever vein that was and, and mess with me later on in life to be able to have kids and nobody wanted to do it i think because of that and he said i can i can do it and he did it and he saved my life and wow. they replaced the main artery to my heart but in that surgery if we uh, they they lost me like three times wow and uh that was like the, the one of the defining moments not because it happened and i felt like i changed into another person i felt like i was born when i woke up from that surgery I don't remember anything before that, really. Mm-hmm. I don't have any recollection of a lot of stuff. I had these memories, they pop around, but they don't always feel like mine. Mm-hmm. So I had this belief about people being born and some people walking into experiences. If this body had to die, what would that have done to my family? Something great is supposed to happen with somebody else in my family later on and don't have anything to do with me. But if that had to happen, then I would have it would have stopped that from happening. These things happen, I believe, but that's just my belief. But um, that was a defining moment. And I let my dad down and my mom, and I was like, I'm never going to do that again. Never going to let them down. Because that was the first time I saw my father cry. Mm. And I didn't know men did that. (laughs) I mean, I would. I'm like a boy at the time. You know what I mean? But my dad, when I saw that and the disappointment, I was like, all right, I'm going to make him proud not and i didn't do what i did just for him i obviously love what i do but it meant everything to me to dedicate and and name myself like when i when we picked names i picked mr porter so there we go you know what i mean Mm -hmm. but that was a defining moment and probably two years after that i met i had already knew proof 
Mm-hmm. But then two years after that, two years after that, I met M. I met Eminem. Okay. So before we get to that next chapter mm-hmm. um, with, with uh, Eminem and, and all the work there, I want to focus uh, on something modern time. Mm-hmm. So you'd mentioned that uh, anxiety is something that you live with. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah. And man, something that stands out to me for just speaking to you for a few minutes, because just for our audience to know, like we've never spoken before. We're uh-huh. connected yeah. uh, by our mutual friend, Jay Reason. You know, mm-hmm. shout out to Jay. Shout out to Jay. All right. So listen, I'm just some guy you're talking to across, uh, you know, a mm-hmm. line here. Yeah. And right off the bat, you're being super open, super vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Like you're talking in a way that I think is important for people and men to be able to talk about like yeah. anxiety, fear, like more fear about mortality, like all these things. Have you ever always been open like this? Or is this something as a result of like the kind of, you know, just like coming to this place throughout your life? No, I wasn't. I was always hiding behind everything. I was hiding, hiding behind my group. I was hiding behind the shadows of whatever M was doing. I was hiding behind all of that. Like let them be in front. Cause remember I had a people phobia young. So it was natural for me to be in the back. But I did that to a point where it was like, your life is like, this is the one you got. We don't know. Nobody knows what happens after this. God made it to where when you leave, you don't know. Mm. When you get here, you don't remember. Mm. But you were definitely something before. it. We don't know what. So for what I can tell, this is what I got. And at some point, once you start healing, and enough people tell you that you can't feel. Like, I'm always being told, we told we can't cry. We told we, we can't express ourselves. There's no place for men to express themselves without being canceled. Mm-hmm. We can't, we, we got to watch everything. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's because some of the people before us didn't do it right. Maybe they didn't treat women right. Maybe they didn't treat situations right. But that's not everybody. But we got to a point where it's like, be this, be this, be this. But then they tell us to be something else. I'm tired of people telling me what to be. I don't want anybody to tell me what to be. You either accept me for the, the truth that I am and you don't like me and you can say, well, whatever you want to say. And I had to get to a point where it was like, I don't care mm-hmm. about what people think because that hurts me to not express myself. Yeah. And the more interviews I listen to, like Jamie Foxx, Will Smith, Mike Tyson, um, D.L. Hughley, Dick Gregory, and now so many more people like... Um, uh, like Farrakhan, all of these people are influential to me, right? So when I look at them, they comfortable in their skin. I want that comfortability for myself. And the only way I'm going to get that is like saying the stuff that I don't, I wouldn't normally say. Most people would say I'm open, but that's because I actually let them in. Mm. That's only a handful of people. Because a lot of people don't know nothing about me. (laughs) You know what I mean? So, and that's kind of like, I like it like that. I like it like that. I'd, I'd rather have it that way because it's safer. But it's just open, man. Like, we don't have outlets. And if I can be a person that's a sounding board and I can influence a kid that's going to have a platform even bigger, be yourself. It's okay to be yourself. We don't have to be these things that we're being sold and shoveled. You know? It's, false, it's, it's a false narrative that you got to be something else to be seen or be heard. I don't have to wear the biggest chain. I don't have to, I don't have to say, I'm, I don't have to sleep with every chick I meet. I don't have to talk about all of that. I don't have to talk about money. I don't have to do all of that. I can be me and that's enough. Mm-hmm. We are enough. You're enough who you are. You don't have to tell this crazy, crazy story for it to be enough. You're born to be enough. We just been told that we weren't. Mm-hmm. 
And we also are told if you do say too much or if you don't say this or if you don't do this, then you're wrong. How is it wrong for me to say I'm accountable for the shit that I, shit that I did? I'm accountable for it. I did it. Nobody did it to me. Nothing happened to me. Things happen and I react. That's on me. So how is that wrong for me to say, uh, well, okay, I get it. But then if I say, let me draw this line and this boundary, that's when people have a problem. Because they draw boundaries and lines. They'll tell you, well, you know, that's too, too TMI. It's not. It happened to me. It happened in my life. I experienced it. So how is it too much? We just, men don't have an outlet. And that's why we act out with our emotions. And that's why some of us are, you know, we, we, we don't, we trapped. It's like taking a lion and putting him in a, in a public school. A lion. And you put him in a school, he's going to run through there and he's going to scare everybody. But really, he's scared because you took him out of his environment and put him in a place and told him to act a certain kind of way. Mm. Right? Then they killed a lion. Mm. Well, man, I just want to say, like, for a guy that I'm just hearing speak for the, like, basically for the first time outside of, like, interviews or TV or anything, like, mm -hmm. I appreciate your vulnerability. I think, like, being comfortable in your own skin, like, truly comfortable in your own skin is, mm -hmm. like, for me, it's been a lifelong just brutal journey to get Man. real comfortable with who I am. But I'll say the closer I get to it, the freer I feel. It take a long time. Mm -hmm. It take a long time. I ain't even all the way there because I'm just now cracking the the top of the iceberg to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. All right. You ready to go back in time? Well, let's do all it. Right. All right, man. So let's talk about, you know, you shift gears in your life and you start getting in that creative space and you start, mm -hmm. you know, you, you meet proof. A couple of years later, you meet Eminem. So let's, let's talk about your creative journey and how that started and kind of just like the, the things that really stand out for you in that space. I think the best thing that could happen for me was he told, Proof told me the truth. He told me when I wasn't good. He told me like, this is cool, but the drums are too loud. This is cool, but the drums is whack. I jumped into the game producing a, a full album. I produced Infinite, like the whole thing. Made all of the beats. And then Proof came in and he had to fix some of the drums because I had a, a, a Emacs. I had an Emacs. I didn't even have a drum machine at the time. And I didn't even have a sequencer. So all of that stuff, I did it without a sequencer. It was like I had to do it with my thumbs. So I had to play the sample, then play the drums, play the drums. So the way they was hearing was me actually sequencing it myself on an Akai SO1. And if anybody, it's such an old machine, you probably can't even find one. And I did the whole Infinite album on that. So I wow, always man. had this offbeat kind of feel to, the, to my drums and stuff like that. But that was like, Proof told me the truth. That was the best thing that happened because he didn't, he didn't let me think that I was something that I wasn't and he gave me room to grow. Mm. So how did you even get into like producing? Like where was the start of that for you? Um, we used to, I was in a group called Crazy Tunes with my, my best friend Rich mm -hmm. and Three. His name is Three. And mm -hmm. <laughs> Three was like the dude that got us all into rap. Mm -hmm. And when we went to the studio, he kind of took these loops and made a beat. And I was like, you can rap and make beats? <laughs> and then Proof did it. And then I saw this guy. I met this guy named IQ, who was actually the reason I met Eminem. Mm -hmm. IQ heard me and, and thought that I was dope. But everybody was like, they, everybody thought IQ was dope. But for him to think that I was dope out of all these people, I was like, okay, I must have something. 
and he I saw him make beats and when he he made beats and did it and, and rapped over his songs, I was like, I wanna do that. And then I then I saw Benita Applebaum. I think it was no, it was I left my wallet in El Segundo, then Benita Applebaum. I was already up on NWA and things like that, but I wasn't into it as as much because I lived in that environment. So I was like, man, I don't want to really hear that. I gravitated more towards Tribe Called Quest, Souls of Mischief, things like that. And then I started just producing. I was like, I thought producing was like making beats was just fun. I found something that loved me back in that moment. Mm -hmm. It was instant, instant gratification. I was super excited every time I did one thing. You know, when you get something that you can appreciate in that moment and it happens like hanging up a picture and it's straight without having to use a leveler and you pat yourself on the back that's instant gratification is something i always tell somebody do something with your hands if you feel bad do something with your hands like mm. fix something mm. pump up a tire do something that you you know something like that it's instant gratification i found something that loved me back Man, I, I love what you just said. Everything you just said there was super powerful, but especially that, like, I found something that loved me back. Yeah. Because, like, professionally, personally, like, a lot of people put a ton of energy and time into things that will never love them back. Never. Or that don't embrace them or don't give results. Yeah. But when you find that thing, it's life-changing. So you found that in producing. I found it in producing, but I also found it in just... Once I realized I could like put songs together, I didn't realize that until years, years, years later, almost only five years ago. Mm. That's super new for me because I was in mm. a group. So I knew how to start the beat and do the song, but I didn't know that that was what I was doing. Like, I mean, I, I was producing. I knew how to produce. I could take any artist and make them sound incredible. Mm. But I didn't know that at that time it was like I was making songs for them. Mm. Right. I was starting a mode and emotion and a mood. And gave them a mood and it, and it pushed them. I just wanted every artist to feel like the song that I did for them was one of their favorites. I didn't never care about people and the, the number one record. That never was my thing. So that's not what my career represents. Mm. A lot of producers, they, they chase that record. And I just want the artist to feel like when they get in their car and they say one of them songs like, yo, this was my shit. Yeah. That's really what I like. All right, so let's let's go over to to meeting Eminem. So, mm -hmm. at what stage of all of your careers were you at? What you mean? Say it again. What stage so like, of all of yours? Yeah, like when you met Eminem, where were all of you from your careers? Like oh. you all kind of you're you're all still pretty junior in what you're doing, like early yeah. days, right? Yeah, we was babies. Yeah. We, he was like, when I met him, he was he 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 had this song called Backstabber, so he played it, and I was like, "Yo, it's dope," but I can't really understand what you're saying. Like, if we slowed it down, it'll be, and then we did another version of that song was Backstabber too. Mm -hmm. And then we did Infinite. So it was like people actually heard him because he was a Tretch fan. So it was boop, 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 zip, 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 zip. And I was too because I thought, but I was like, that's Tretch. But you are saying a whole bunch. It's loaded. It was like really loaded what he was saying because when he was rapping fast, I still could understand. I was listening to it like, wait a minute, you're not just rapping fast because at the time, people would do it just to do it. Right. And it was very rare for people to be able to do it like Tretch. Like he was saying stuff while he was doing it. Just like yeah. Twister. Twister don't just rap fast or Buster. Like it's a skill. Tech 9. It's a skill. And M was able to do it and I was like, yo, if you slowed it down and people heard you, and the music that I gave him at the time was like really mood. It was like something that 
the things that you would hear today, a lot of jazz pianos, a lot of those things, but those are the only records that I had. Soul for records, I didn't have rock records in the house. I had, you know, what I, so I was making beats with what I had. So he was real novice at it and all of us too. So he got better and I got better. And I, then me and my dad was like, I was getting older and we was clashing and he was like, well, look, I said, I don't have a place to stay. And he was like, well, look, I'm going to let you take the room and make beats in the room and I'll sleep on the couch. And I thought that that was the craziest thing ever. And I was like, I get to get better. And he got better. And, and you know, I'm pretty sure I was a headache because I was younger than him. So I didn't even know how to keep a job. You know what I'm saying? So, but then we started working at this place and he took that job serious. Like it was like, I saw how serious he took things. What was, was the job? Uh, we worked at this place called Gilbert's Lodge. It was like mm-hmm. a, we was cooks. Uh-huh. Short order cooks and, and uh, and, he was and like he took he, he took the job seriously. <laughs> oh yeah, he took he took it seriously. He took everything seriously. Yeah, he was like he's the man at that shit. Like he's way mm-hmm. faster than I was on the grill. But um, we started there, and that's when I had that job. And I was like, I saw. I didn't have a lot of proof in him. Was like big brothers, like so, you know what I mean? And I was I was able to learn a lot of things that I I wasn't able to learn being with my family and up under my father. Because we was clashing so much that sometimes you got to leave home to, like, learn those lessons. So I learned how to keep a job at that point. I learned how to – I remember I got my first car. It was a blue Corsica. And it was the coolest car to me because I was like, this looked like some spaceship. It was like circle. <laughs> it wasn't that round edge. <laughs> and if you bust your head on it playing football in the street. And um, I remember he, I got the car and he said, well, now you got to come to work and pay for it. Cause I was always late and I was like, <laughs> and I was like, I was like, yeah, he hate no, but he was right. Cause I had to pay for it. I love it, man. Yeah. All right. So you start working together, you're living together. You're, you're literally actually working a job together. Yeah. So tell me about when you guys' world starts to change in terms of like real deal success. What was that like? That was, uh, it was difficult for me in the beginning because I was so used to being with him all the time. Yeah. And when he left and went to California or whatever and all of the stuff was happening, I was still in Michigan. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, I'm going to get a house phone. So I got a house phone in the basement. I moved back with my parents. Um, I was a different person when I moved back. I was actually better at, you know, being a grown-up. But I was always searching for something. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was out there and it was like he would call or I would call him and, you know, be able to hit him up. And he would tell me the stories and I'd be like, man. And the one thing that I remember that I always wanted to do when he was telling me that stuff was I figured everybody was grabbing at him. And at that time, it was like, well, look, I'm going to be there. I'm going to get there. And then I'm going to see you out there. It was never like, yo, bring me out. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm pretty sure that was already happening. Mm-hmm. And I remember I got the phone got cut off because I couldn't afford to keep it on. And then we didn't talk for a little bit, but the girlfriend I had at the time, she actually bought me my first drum machine. So I was like, now I'm like, all right, I'm about to turn all the way up on the beats. And so when he did come home, he would play me stuff that he was working on with Dre. And I just couldn't believe he was working with Dre. I was like, man, what? This is crazy. But then I was like, but yo, Dre working with you, that's a totally different sound for Dre. So at this time, I'm learning too. So I was able to hear stuff before everybody else was able to hear it. So I was already influenced a little bit sonically. Yeah. So sonically I was trying to, but not thinking to myself, not knowing how that even happened, 
Dre heard the music that I was making for him to even make him, you know what I mean? So I was like, and when I first met Dre, the first thing he said to me, I was scared to say something to him. And I forgot who introduced me to I think it was Mark, my man, Mark LaBelle, I think. Mark LaBelle, or he was like, yo, Denon did just don't give a fuck. He did low down dirty. He was like, yo, that's my shit. Like, you're the reason we here. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I never thought of it like that. Yeah, man. So, like, you you influenced him as he influenced you. So, he influenced man. you. You influenced him. Yeah. Then you heard all the stuff that he was working with Eminem in California. Mm -hmm. He came back. He went up meeting him. But, all right. So, you know, obviously, we all know the story. Mm -hmm. Eminem blows up, all of that kind of stuff. Tell me about, like, going along that journey, but also, like, your journey, man. Because, like, you know, this isn't about Eminem. This is about you mm -hmm. and, you know, D12 and everything you've done, done past that. So, like, tell us about that chapter, you know, the... The tide has risen, like all the boats are rising with the tide. What was going on for you as all that was happening? Um, let's see. The, that time, like D12 for me was the outlet. It was like my way to stretch my wings. I was like trying to show, improve. Mm -hmm. I was trying to earn that same respect that I had from M producing for him. Mm -hmm. Because you got to think about it this way. This is something I never really talked about. When Dre met him, I was his producer. So I was making all the beats. When he got there, the guys that he was working with, they kind of cut me out. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't able to get off. I wasn't around. I couldn't afford to be there. And I definitely wasn't about to be like, yo, bring me out, man. Like, I'm not about to cause that kind of, like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it's, it, it worked the way it was supposed to work. If he thought to bring me out, he would have bought me out. But it was like, let me just keep working. That was, I was raised like that, like just do for self, you know? Mm. And the friendship meant more to me than anything, you know what I'm saying? Because I didn't have a lot of, you know. Do you, do you mind if I just pause there for one second? Mm -hmm. How important that is, is that your friend, someone that you loved and care about, got their shot. Yeah. And that you could give them the space to do that and you can respect that without being like jealous or angry or insistent. That's a huge thing, man. But that must've been hard as hell. It was, it was tough. Cause like he was once Dre, Dre became the producer. Mm -hmm. So I was like demoted to back to where I was at. And then the guys that was there, I was, I was bringing music up to them, but I was noticing how like some of the stuff that the guy ended up playing. Cause it was this dude, he would play music for him. Like he was a keyboard player, he was, you know? And it was like some of the melodies that I was bringing them. And I was like, he was influenced by the stuff that I was giving him, whether they told him that or not, he just was in the room with him and I wasn't. And I learned how important it was to be in the room. But that's when I was kind of like, I kind of grew a disdain for being in the room with people. I don't really work around a lot of people. I'm always working by myself mm. because of that. But I needed to do that because he needed that space. So it's like you got to be the friend. You still got to be the friend. And most people be like, oh, that's fucked up. You should have been near. I should have did this. Well, it ended up happening because we was with the group and we did the group. You know what I mean? Once we did the group thing. But I was just, I just kept working and I worked hard enough to where we were still moving around. And I ended up getting a situation for me and uh, Conniver, who's one of the guys in the group. We was a group called The Brigade inside the D12. And I was like, well, fuck it. I'm going to get, we get our own deal. And I kind of had a deal on the table. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
the the thing was we was going everybody was just going to stop and we was going to all just be the group and go do do it that way but yeah that was a tough time because like i went from being the guy then these guys kind of cut me out but then they was kind of taking some of the influence of the music that i was giving them to give to him which probably never even got to him yeah and at the same time you had to move back in with your parents yeah you had a phone he had a phone but you couldn't afford the phone yeah the phone couldn't afford the phone yeah. Dude, but it sounds like what you did was you just took all that and you put your friendship with M first mm-hmm. and thought of that relationship. At the same time, you also refunneled all your energy back into developing yourself or developing your skill, developing mm-hmm. your sound. That's a huge thing, man, because think how many people in that same position would just be having sour grapes and kind of being like, what oh, should have been me. But you refocused. Yeah, no, I, was, I mean, there's something I was like, because you got the only, only thing that I think it is like the, to the, the only thing. There's a toxic element to that, which was I was always trying to prove myself to them again after that. Mm, yeah. So, and I mean, I'm I did PIMP, I did Stunt One Hundred One, I do I do all of these singles, multiply all of these big records, and they platinum records. Boom, 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 boom. Mm. Tried to work with people, the relationships would go bad. Like I was trying to do everything that I was learning, and I was always trying to prove myself to that to the camp, because mm-hmm. I felt like, damn, did I just was I not good enough? And then that get exhausted. Did you ever prove? Well, did you ever prove yourself, or did you ever stop trying I, to prove? Yourself? I just stopped looking for it to be anything other than. Once you got a family, they see you how they see you. Mm. You know what I mean? Like my brother's my brother. Yeah. He could turn into Master P tomorrow. He's just mm. gonna be my brother. You yeah. know what I mean? So you kind of like gotta learn the elements of how it works. It's not, and that's how you not have that disdain all the time there's been times where it was so tough i'd be upset but it'd be like i always rationalize with myself because i always had to go within because that's all i had was me to go you know what i mean i had to go within i had that so that's how you kind of had to deal with it so uh and it was like there's toxic elements to it like you know you want to grow in a system and i always just dedicated myself to that system yeah and i didn't step off the island because i was like that's where i was comfortable i was always comfortable with my crew you know and i did step off because obviously i have a name outside of that but it could have been a lot more if i was a lot more uh like that at that time if i was more about me but that's the i was dealing with the survival's remorse at the same time like don't do too much you don't want to act like you it was real you know it was a tough thing mentally that's why this pandemic was so good because I got to sit at home with all of those thoughts and kind of flush through them and yeah. those emotions and shit. Yeah. So D12 happens. So tell us, tell us about that. Tell us about D12 and, and that the rise of that. Um, that was very, it was fun because it was your friends. It was dope because M came back and was like, yo, let's do the group thing. And, so we was all back together again and everybody was doing anything. And then, uh, man, it was just a, you know, you travel, it was college for us. So we didn't go to college. Shit. Three of us only got eighth grade educations. So mm-hmm. technically we, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, at the time. So it was fun because it was your crew and, uh, man, it was a lot of stuff we didn't know. And a lot of things that, that people was able to do better afterwards because, I realized that this that the culture will never look at D12 like never will look at it like how we, how fun it was for us and how we thought we was making 
you know, groundbreaking things. We would we were overseas doing shows where a lot of people weren't. Sure, yeah. We broke a lot of those doors, a lot of that stuff open. Like we broke the depths of it. We went. That's where we went. We didn't even do it over here. And it was a lot of things that we did that like were monumental, but they won't ever be talked about. And I don't know. That kind of sucks. That part right. sucks. But then I also look at the music and I'm like, man, I would have did a lot of stuff different if I was if I was as knowledgeable as I am now. Yeah. Or even as I was during the second album. During the second album, I was growing into me. Mm-hmm. So production-wise, I was growing, growing, growing. Because, I mean, at this point, I got hit records. I know exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. So I was still trying to prove myself even to the group. Like, yo, let me kind of take this like Dre would do and produce the Dre. And like, but it just wasn't that. It just never happened. So I was just like, it was always the back and forth struggle for me. And this is something I never really opened up about. But like, like I say, I'm not, I don't give a fuck no more because it, you can't fault me for my experience. My experience was not always the best, but I'm also very thankful. Mm. Like, just because I'm thankful don't mean that I'm blind. Like, you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. like it's kind of crazy the way people's like, you know, that's the sad part. People would be like, how could you say, how could you feel like you're in a, fans do that all the time. How You're in such a great space. How can you say that yada, yada? Okay, well, me being in that space don't make cops look at me no different and they'll shoot me in the face. What world do you live in where you think that the that the person that you are actually dif- makes it different for how people actually treat you? Yeah, man. Totally. You know? And so, yeah, it was tough. It was fun, but it was a learning experience. But if I had known what I know now, man, I would have did some things that was different, like some of the content, you know? I had so many other ideas. I had some great ideas, and I kept them to myself, and I didn't. I wasn't vocal about them because I didn't feel comfortable being vocal at the time. I didn't feel like it was like this ain't my ship. Like I'm just you know a part of it. So, so you go from D12 and you really build up your career to where you are today. And like you're kind of like the consummate man behind the scenes. Like Mm -hmm. you have done some incredible, Mm -hmm. huge stuff, Mm -hmm. but people wouldn't necessarily know. So tell us how you got from D12 to where you're at now. Mm, Well. Only reason that I'm not in D12 at, at, at this point is because when Proof got killed, it was over for me at that point. Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily right over. The business just didn't line up with how things worked with me because what people don't know is that every time I went to produce a song, it went back to paying back a part of D12's publishing deal, which mm-hmm. was completely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So when I tried to go back and fix that, then they didn't understand it because they didn't necessarily understand the business part of it. So they would be mad and it's like, bro, it's really not fair. I'm just trying to fix it. It's not going to stop anything that you're doing. I just need time to fix that. Mm-hmm. And maybe I didn't articulate it right. Like, obviously, I don't, you know, you don't, it ain't not a nice way to say I'm getting fucked out of some money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or, you know, it's not fair. Mm-hmm. And then that's the only reason I exited. And because of the moves that was being made, it was like, I didn't think that they aligned with the brand. And I was like, man, I don't want to tarnish this thing that we built. So if I remove myself and maybe we can kind of regroup, we just never regrouped. And, uh, but then obviously I was producing for everybody. I knew everybody, anybody that was anybody. And so I was able to continuously 
show and prove there. But like I said, it was a long time. So I took my break. I take breaks because it's not as important as my sanity. And I realized how unhappy I was when proof passed away. I, I was diagnosed with AFib. I never had high blood pressure. Then it was like I had this high blood pressure. And I was like, what the hell is happening? But it was depression. So I'm in standing depression. I'm like functioning depression. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. And, uh, during that time I was working with artists like guilty Simpson, uh, J electronica, um, my daughter, Tierra. I was like, I, I didn't realize how important I was in her life. Cause I met her when she was 11 mm-hmm. and I didn't have any children, you know what I mean? Her father was killed and I was working with her. This amazing artist, like this kid and there's like this girl. And I'm like, so I'm working with her and it's like, this is more fun than everything else that I'm doing. Like, right. So I'm throwing myself into it and we were bonding, but I didn't know how important our relationship was. And then when her father passed away, I was like, you'll never not have a dad. You know, and I took that role. And then I, th- when I look back at it now, I wish I'd have spent more time in her growth, in her life, right? But now it's just an unbreakable bond and, you know, you grow. And so during that time after proof, like I just took a lot of time to just, I went through a lot of stuff, man, depression. And then then I'm kind of like falling into a role of like, I got to be a grown up. I can't let her see me with a whole bunch of women. I can't let her do like, you know what I mean? Like I was mm-hmm. trying to, trying to figure out how to be a, you know, a good role model as a person and, 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 and as a, a father, cause I don't look at it like that's anything other than my daughter. Yeah. Um, so you had this early, early life near death experience mm-hmm. and you know, you've been around people who have, uh, you know, really significant artists who've passed away, but your own near death experience, mm-hmm. but then the passing of proof, mm-hmm. how, how has that made you look? at life and how you spend your time um i'll tell you the biggest thing that i'm a very quick to cut people off kind of person because i like my peace mm-hmm. but i'm very big on if you say you love somebody and how you treat them if you're not capable of considering them you don't really love them because mm-hmm. love makes you consider people mm-hmm. it, you consider that person when you do something yeah, it's for you. You do things that's for you. How you speak to them. How you treat them. So when people say things that they don't mean, you know how they like, oh, when you're mad, you say things you don't mean? I try not to do that. Because me and Proof didn't, we, at that time, the last time I had saw him, we had, we, we had gotten to a fight. And it was not, probably he wasn't in his right mind at the time. Um. And it was scaring me because I, I was like, man, I don't know. I didn't know who he was at the time when we got into that fight. And that was, I didn't, that was the last interaction I had with him. So for like a couple of years of just being depressed, I didn't know that he, I, I was like, man, he, we was at odds. And I was really mad at him. And I was more mad at him because this is the only person in the group that knew the business the way I knew it. 
Like I learned it because of him. I learned it because that was the thing that I, I learned that shit, man. Like, so we would have conversations when he was here and was like, yo, let's just tour. We don't need security. Let's just go. We go do a tour and we do this and we cut it down and we just tour for like a year and just do it. We was like doing rock band shit. It's like, fuck hotels. We'll just stay at a hotel every three days. And yada, yada, yada. You know what I mean? Yeah. We was really like, we and, and we knew then what the game was becoming. He ended up getting into the independent world. I was literally following. I wasn't trying to go get a major. I actually had three offers in the, on the table at the time for solo records. I never put a solo record out because I felt like I shouldn't do it. But I had all these, always had solo music. I was a producer. Every time I made a song, the reason I was able to make those songs is because I made those songs for me first. Mm. Right? Like, I would make the song for me first and then sell it to somebody. That's why I had a hook on it already. That's why I was like, and I already had a deal on the table. I had three. And I didn't take any of them. And it was like, yo, I'm doing this deal with this and this. And that. I was like, for real? But I was trying to do the group thing with Canava. So then I was trying to get him to come to the studio. And he was living life. He got married and he had a family and he had to, you know what I mean? So I was like, I'm waiting. And I always put myself on the back burner and I kept doing, kept doing it. So he was the only person that knew the business like I do it and did it and had the same work ethic that I had. I live in a studio before I went home. So then I built a studio in my house. But I still live in that room pretty much. Right? And I did that for a long time. So when I lost, when he was gone, everybody made it about Eminem losing a friend. That's all they talked about. So who properly grieved when fans made it about him losing his best friend? Right? Did never, nobody properly grieved. And when I realized that, I was like, oh shit, this is happening. I have to actually do it myself. I can't, you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, this shouldn't be going this way, but that's the way the world is. So go do it yourself. Yeah. And when I lost, when that when that loss happened, I removed myself from the bad business for me. I started doing things for myself more so, and that became a problem because people don't have a problem with your boundaries; they just have a problem with how you're gonna treat them. Like when you make a boundary, and you create a boundary, it's like, oh, he's changing, but it's really just stopping them from being able to continue treat you the same way that they're treating you. Technically, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so once I started doing that, then I became a problem. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't. I was just like, yo, this is not working right. The brand is like it's being tarnished. And that's not a slight to the guys. That's just mm -hmm. the truth of how things went. But losing that loss was significant. And recently, last week was his, um, the anniversary of his passing, which I always, I always, for the last two years, I just tried to ignore that day. I was just like, I'm only going to celebrate his birthday. I'm not even going to talk about, I don't post. I try not to post. I don't even get online that day because I know everybody else will. A handful of people will remember that time. Mostly it's the fans because they just true like that. And you love them. I love that they remember, you know, but people in your life may not. So they might have what they want from you. They might want you to be who they want you to be. And they don't even say, how are you? Are you okay today? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that becomes a thing where it's like, damn, that hurts. You get what I mean? Because it's like, you getting mad at me for whatever you getting mad at me for, but not even asking me am I okay. 
but you love me. So when he passed away, I made it my business to make sure that I say what I mean. And I try not to say anything that's not, I'm I'm not perfect. But I'm not going to lie and say I'm not perfect just to make it an excuse for me saying something that I shouldn't say. Yeah, right? totally, man. Yeah. So I, I, things that I said that I would never get to take back. Things that he said that he'd never get to take back. So I learned a valuable lesson there. And obviously, yeah, there could be trauma or whatever, but it's also a lesson. Man, treat people the best you can while they're here. He passed away. DMX passed away a couple of days before the proof anniversary of his death. I'm currently, I have songs that I just did with DMX. I never got to work with him and I was able to work with him. Me and Swizz are really cool. And he sent me a video of a song that he was working on and killing the verse. It's incredible. Like, and I'm like, yo, this is crazy. Like I'm happy. And I'm like, then he passes away. So that was a tough week. I was remodeling my whole house last week because I had to keep myself from being depressed. Yeah. And I saw Swizz, I saw him post this video and I was crying because I know how he feels. I know exactly how he feels. Everybody can say what they know about X and all of these things, but he knows him. That was his friend. Yeah. That was his brother. Like, we can all say that about Proof. So when fans be like, oh, you know, M, we, you know, it's good that you're there for him. And it's like, listen, lady, I'm going through the same exact shit. You just minimize it, but I'm not looking for you to be anything because I don't look at you for that. Mm-hmm. But it's just kind of foul that you actually making it about something else. So nobody actually properly grieves when these things happen because fans are one part of it. Family is different. Family loses a family member. Fans lose an artist. Some of those fans may feel like they left a fam- lost a family member. But the truth of the fact and the matter is like you really are not the family. Mm. Right? Yeah. And some people like X is like proof. A lot like they was a lot like. Everybody felt like they knew that person personally. DMX prayed for everybody he ever met. He prayed for us more than we prayed for him. And when he mm. was going through his addiction, I know for a fact there was people that, that was trying to help him. But that's just not always the way it get to go. Yeah. Right? Um, so I want to ask you a couple questions as we're, as we're getting close to the end here. Like, dude, you've shared so much, man, and I really, really appreciate it. I really want to make sure that we're hitting on something that's super important to me. Mm-hmm. Is who are you today, man? Because we've talked a lot about your journey, but who uh-huh. are you today? Um, I am still a little afraid of, uh, uh, I still have fears that I'm working through, but I'm facing them. I am still learning to not be so mad about the things that I didn't do, the loves that I didn't create, the children that I didn't get to, um, to inspire. I'm still trying to inspire kids and younger versions of me. Mm -hmm. I want to even more now because I know it's another me out there. Right? So right now, I'm just trying to be the best person. I'm trying to, I want God to be okay with me. Mm -hmm. I really don't care about nothing else. (laughs) 
I want God to be happy with them. I want that. I want my desires to align with what God wants for me. Okay. Well, with that and with what you just said, what can you tell us about two things? One, I want to hear about your mentoring because I know like mentoring is important to you. And then mm-hmm. two, I want to hear about what's going on for you career-wise today. So, but let's start with the mentoring. Uh, I, that is just a random thing. Whenever it comes, I don't try to, I don't sign up for things. I don't do a lot of that. Like, especially now with COVID, it's like hard to, before it was just like the studio, we always have younger talent around. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that was always my school. Mm-hmm. Any studio I'm in, if there's somebody there that's that's not in a place that, that they trying to get to a place, I'm going to give you every piece of game that I got. Some people are teachers. Uh, I have a lot of mentors. My father, mm-hmm. uh, my uncle, my uncles, um, my man Jason. Jason Wilson is like a mentor, but like a friend, like a big brother. He works with a lot of kids, and the way when I see him do it, it's like, man, that takes a lot. He works with young boys, and it's like important that we have it mm-hmm. because I can tell a kid how to make music, or I can tell him how to be a good man. Mm-hmm. Right? It's more valuable for me to tell him. He gonna figure out how to make music. Like if you really want it, you gonna study that. Most people don't study how to be a a, a, a man. Mm. They don't study it. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 man. So that's easier to like do. Uh, I have more mentor. Uh, uh, Eric Roberson. I look to him. I always ask him. I just randomly bug him. I, I just recently um, started talking a lot to. Uh, I, I talked to David Banner for like a couple hours. It was the most random conversation, but mm-hmm. the best conversation I had had in a long time. Mm-hmm. And I look at him, and, I, and he like an OG to me. And. Uh, and when I say that, I don't mean it. I mean it like he's very knowledgeable about who he is and who he wants to be. And I, those things, when you really putting out the right energy, it just comes to you. Mm-hmm. So right now, I think I'm in school. That's that. kind of how I feel, you know? Yeah. All right. So tell us about your career today. What about you today? Um, I am just now, I, I feel like I treat this game how I want to treat it. I don't let it, I don't work for the music industry it has to work for me so what i'm doing right now is like i every year i choose what i want to do i say what i want to focus on this year i'm focusing on production Mm -hmm. i haven't focused on production in a long time and i'm gonna do it quietly without a whole bunch of people like knowing everything that i'm doing but Mm -hmm. i'm working on five or six different artists three of which are, are are major artists to our independent mm-hmm. and then I'm working with just anybody, but then I'm working on myself. Like I have two albums that I've, I'm, I'm one is um called comic Kai, which is based around. I took all of the experiences of my life and put it into each character that I like, like Loki. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a song called incredible. I put a video out for it. And I'm and I do everything weird. I put the video out for this project probably a year, two years ago. And I only did one verse and a hook. <laughs> <laughs> and right? And I did one verse and a hook. And now and they people don't people have no idea that it's attached to a whole project. I was yeah. just like, I'm not ready to put it out yet. I just treat yeah. it how I want to treat it. I understand that that doesn't work for everybody, but I can do what the fuck I want. Yeah. I'm tired of the music industry telling you what the protocol is. Protocol is what the artists say it is. And 
with the passing of X, rest in peace, the passing of Black Rob, I think that we need to start having more care. I think hip hop is a, just hip hop culture is very disrespectful to the people that came before them. Mm. And that has to change. It's the most disrespect. We disrespect our artists more than anything. A rock band that didn't sell shit can tour forever because of their fans actually have an appreciation for them. We the only ones that have this time limit where it's like, let's not do this. Oh, we don't care about it. It's not hot no more. That's not the way it should be. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. that exact same artist, you might have to go back to try to sample that person's song for a song that you got later. Why would you not have a network of that? It's the yeah. most disrespectful thing when I see some of the stuff that's happening with the, the artists today. Like, man, we got to figure out a better way to be. So I don't let the music industry, I don't work for the music industry. I, it works for me. It does what I want it to do when I feel like doing it. And if I don't feel like it, so what? I don't really care about what's happening. I don't care about what artist is hot. I don't care about none of that. I'm still me and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. It works for me. Hell and when yeah, people man. hear it, it's like you can tell that in the music. It works. Why does it work? Because I'm good at what I do. Most people don't know how to articulate it, but when you deal with it in your daily, every day, that has been my story. Like my talent exceeds my confidence, right? And so that's been my thing. It's like, wow, man, he's so talented. Why ain't he more popular? Because I'm not confident enough to be talking to people all the time. Like, <laughs> so I had to get comfortable. And now I'm gonna be a more, I'm gonna be a wealthy old man. I'm going to be more wealthy old than I ever was young. And I did okay as a young guy. But I'm going to be more wealthy even then because you know your past when you, when you accept who you are and you accept it and you're like, all right, just face that thing. I look, I look at myself in the mirror. Look at yourself in the mirror. I do this all the time. Look at yourself in the mirror and tell yourself you love yourself. Tell you, I love you, I love you, I love you until tears fall from your eyes. I do it whenever I feel like shit and it works. Yeah. But also, man, the, the thing that stands out for me, it goes right back to the beginning of our conversation. You found that like you, you became more comfortable in yourself. You became more comfortable in your process. You took your space. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm taking, I'm claiming, I'm claiming it a lot more, but this year, like I just was like, I want to be a producer this year. I'm going to produce yeah. for people. Yeah. Dude. And, you know, myself. So I'm, I'm included in that, <laughs> man. No, I love this. This is, this has been such a cool conversation. All right. Two final questions for you as we are closing off. The first is, you know, and you hinted at this earlier on, you're a huge comic book fan and uh, comic book movie fan, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. So top three comic book characters. Hulk. Um, Iron Man. The flash. Those are my, those are my top three. All right. Final question for you. You know, when you're thinking about like, you've just had such a story. I'm lying. Oh. Blue Marvel is number one. <laughs> Blue Marvel. And, and it's a reason. It's just, listen, they need to dig deep into that story. They really need to dig deep into that story. So I would say Blue Marvel, Hulk, Flash. Okay. Yeah. Iron Man gets the boot. Iron Man the gets the boot. Three. Okay. Listen, man, you've had such a storied career. I, I could talk to you for hours, mm -hmm. like a, on just a personal front. Like, I just love how like open you are and just like, dude, you really, like, I feel like I feel deeply inspired, especially when you said, find something that loves you back. Like that to me is such a standout moment, yeah. but like I could talk to you all day around 
personal stuff, business yeah. stuff, professional stuff. But if you're thinking the people who listen to this podcast are a mix of people from the straight up corporate business world, but also people from the music world, it's kind of like a meeting ground. Mm -hmm. Anything you want to share with people, like anything that you'd say from like a, a space of like what you want people to be thinking about as we're kind of trudging through the rest of this year. Hmm. If you're afraid to share information, if you're a person that's great in finance and you love music, if you listen to Pink Floyd while you're working, then that love for that for music goes across the board. Loving Pink Floyd is loving Outkast. Loving Outkast is loving Ciroc, the MC. Loving that is like in the same way that you share that information, a person in finance should always share information with a person in a whole different business, right? Because mm -hmm. if you're scared to share information, you're not really good at what you do. Mm -hmm. And when people tell you that that's not the way it's done, oh, well, you can't do that because then how are you going to make money? I give away more beats than I actually sell. And that's how I'm able to sell beats. Because I'm going to give you something incredible and people will look for incredible and they're willing to pay for it. Mm -hmm. I'm not afraid to share the knowledge because I don't care how you do what, what I taught you. You're going to do it differently than me. It don't matter. Right? There's no snowflake that falls from the sky that's the same. Not one. And humans are the same way. Right? When people tell you that's not the way that it's done, just tell them. This is my motto. My motto is we are all leaving earth in a box. There's no way that I'm going to live in one. Whew. <laughs> Dude. Right? We leave we you you are. There's no way you're gonna make me live in this box you want me to. It's not the way it's done. That's your box. You leave an earth in that one. I'm not living in it. Oh yeah, man. I'm not. Well, what an incredible note to end our interview on. So man, thank you so much. Um, you know, everyone please check out uh Denon online, check out his projects, support. Yeah. Uh, I'm also on Twitch. I am Denon on Twitch. Uh I'm about to start a Twitch show. I have a mm -hmm. podcast called You Said What, which is down right now because my partner doesn't respect COVID. So he's like out <laughs> in the streets. <laughs> so I was like, I gotta put it on pause. <laughs> uh, and then uh I yeah, I'm working on I have an album called Reflection coming out, and then I have uh an album called Comic Con that's coming out. So, Heck yeah. Yep. Awesome, man. All right. Well, thank you so much, Denon. This was Hey, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate yeah, it. I'm glad my camera stayed on and for the whole time because it usually overheats. <laughs> we were too cool, man. Yeah. All right. All right. That's excellent. Thank you so much. And everybody, we'll see you in the outro. Dave, drop the beat. Wow. Uh, there are very few conversations that I have that leave me speechless. And this was one of them. We covered a ton of stuff and the vulnerability of Danan and just that real honesty. It, it struck me. So, man, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, not just do I think this is a cool episode. It actually personally mattered to me. So thank you. And I got to ask everyone to really consider when you're in this time where is our house empty? Do we not like the person across the bed from us? Do we not like the person looking in the mirror? What's the work you're doing to come out of this time in our world, this pandemic, better than when we entered it? 
It's a compelling question. And, you know, we still have time to do that work. So why not start today? So as we're closing off, I want to remind everyone that we're produced by Patrick McKechnie, edited by Dave Larson, and designed by Tammy Levy. So everyone, stay safe, stay solid, and keep in mind that today is the only day you've got. We'll see you next time on One Step Beyond. One step beyond.